Let's pray together before we look further at God's word together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you that you've preserved it for our benefit. Uh, We thank you that you speak to us through it in a living and active way through the work of your spirit. So please, therefore, take my words and the words of your word and speak to each of us individually such that we are encouraged on our Christian journey and that we live out the gospel to a deeper degree of joy and faithfulness, we pray. And we ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us uh, don't enjoy a fight. Uh, Often, we are conflict avoiders, unless you happen to be a particular Rambo type. However, conflict can be helpful. Conflict can be helpful to clarify issues. Think about in a marriage, Uh, it can help a man and a wife to better understand the hopes and expectations of the likes and dislikes of the other. Uh, Think of with children. Uh, A conflict can help them learn discipline and appropriate behavior. And think of in a church, it can be helpful to flush issues out and to move to a greater clarity and understanding of the gospel. In church history, we have seen instances where the truth of the gospel has been challenged, and yet through the debate that's ensued, a greater gospel clarity has arisen. Well, we come today to the first big bust-up in the early church, the first theological conflict. It's round about 50 AD, and at this point, the demographics of the early church are changing very, very rapidly. Whereas initially, the church had been primarily made up of Jewish believers, now, under God's hand, Gentiles were flooding into the church, non-Jews. And this required the Jewish Christian believers to come to terms with some massive shifts in their understanding of God's kingdom. You see, for centuries, they had enjoyed the status as God's chosen people. However, their theology had become distorted. Uh, they'd been, become comfortable in this misunderstanding that God's concern was only for them, the Jews, and not for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles. But now it's become apparent that their view is at odds with God's view, to the point where they now proclaim, where we've seen this in previous weeks, Acts 11, verse 18. So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Uh, The Jewish Christian, uh, Barnabas, he himself sees the evidence of God's grace at work in the Gentile uh, Syrian city of Antioch. Uh, Many Gentiles have come to faith in Christ in that city. And it's the first recorded instance of a Gentile church. Uh, After Paul's first two-year missionary journey with Barnabas, a string of Gentile churches are now left in Asia Minor, in Galatia. Now, the issue the Jewish Christians are wrestling with is this. So, if God has granted the Gentiles membership of God's people, how do they, the Gentiles, now fit into the equation? Uh, Shouldn't they, the Gentiles, take on the historical sign of God's people, circumcision? Uh, Shouldn't they, the Gentiles, adopt the traditional Mosaic law of God's people? 
And you see, it's not simply a choice between uh, salvation through faith in Christ or circumcision and the law. That issue would be easy to resolve, but it's much more subtle than that. Rather, it is salvation through faith in Christ plus circumcision and the law. Christ plus. So you see, faith in Christ is not rejected, but it's not faith in Christ alone. Now, the issue comes to a head when uh, some Jews arrive in the church at Antioch and, and they declare that circumcision is essential for the salvation of the Gentile Christians. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Uh, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they don't accept that. Uh, they dispute this issue hotly with these people and they are in turn dispatched to the church head offices in Jerusalem to resolve the matter. And so the first church council is convened. Uh, the leaders of the church, they gather together in Jerusalem to resolve this matter. And the, the matter on the agenda is huge and it is very significant. Uh, firstly, the truth of the gospel is at stake. Uh, would these Jewish Christians fully grasp the scope and the magnitude of God's purposes? Would they realize that Christianity was not just a sect of Judaism? You see, that would be putting the new wine in old wineskins. Uh, true, the church was the fulfillment of Judaism, but the new entity was bigger than Judaism. The church was God's global family, made up of people from every nation. And the question was, would these Jewish believers, would they actually see that? And not only is the truth of the gospel at stake, so is the unity of the church. You see, there is now a Jewish and also a Gentile wing. And how will they relate together? Uh, they've got very different cultural and religious backgrounds. And the situation is ripe for friction and for disagreement and for falling out. And if they agree to disagree, then the church could split, which would in itself be a great tragedy. The tensions in the church were not just limited to the church at Antioch. Uh, it's interesting as you read uh, Acts, it gives you the sort of overview of what happened in early church history, but it also gives you the context then for other letters in the New Testament sent to these various churches. And when we read this section of Acts, we get the context for the letter to the Galatians, which Paul wrote. And what we see in the letter to Galatians is additional background to what was going on at the time. You see, the problem was also festering in the Galatian churches. It wasn't just Antioch. Uh, these are the churches that Paul, we saw last week, had established on his first missionary journey several years earlier. Uh, look at Galatians 1, verses 6 to 7. Paul says to these Galatian churches throughout Asia Minor, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So you see, the problem isn't just Antioch, 
it is widespread throughout all the Gentile churches. It's quite likely that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians whilst he was journeying up to Jerusalem to have this issue resolved. Uh, The second chapter of Galatians also provides additional insights into the tensions and the confusion in the Antioch church at the time. Uh, We know that the church in Antioch was made up of Gentiles but also Jewish believers. And it's very evident from Galatians that things were not well between them, that their fellowship was being ruptured. What was happening is that the Jewish and Gentile members of the church had stopped even eating with each other. It got that bad. There was great confusion. Even the great church leaders like Peter and Barnabas, who you'd think were safe pairs of hands, had muddled thinking. Paul later recounts in Galatians 2 verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, and that is up in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So there we have the situation, a very dire and serious situation. And we're going to see now how it was resolved. And we're going to see for two things. Firstly, there was, wonderfully, a firmness and unmovability on the essentials for salvation. But secondly and wonderfully, there was also a flexibility on the non-essentials for salvation. So let's see uh, what happened in more detail before we then think about how this should affect and apply to us today. So, uh, as you see, much is at stake. Uh, The council, uh, this Christian leadership, is convened. And under God's gracious hand, uh, muddled thinking becomes clear. Uh, They get together, they talk about it, and then uh, three key speeches in particular are recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. Uh, The three speeches are from the three Jewish movers and shakers in the church, uh, the leadership, and they're all in full agreement together. They say uh, both Jew and Gentiles are members of God's people on the same basis by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as we see in their speeches, uh, both experience and scripture bear this out. It starts with Peter. He recounts what happens, uh, what happened to him. Uh, God, of course, gave him the vision of the clean and unclean animals. That, in turn, caused him to tell Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, the gospel. And then, of course, Cornelius and his household, they came to faith in Christ. And the Spirit was poured out on all of them. And it was then Peter realized, this is a work of God. This is God's will that Gentile people come into his kingdom. Uh, Next up uh, at the council is Paul and Barnabas. And they then report and recount what God had done through their traveling missionary journeys. And they say that, yes, God indeed has authenticated our ministry. God has performed miraculous signs amongst the Gentiles, confirming our message. And finally, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, gives this amazing speech where he then backs it all up with Scripture. 
Uh, Peter himself sums it up well in Acts 15, verse 9 and 11. He says this. He, that is God, made no distinction between us and them. That is between the Jews and the Gentiles. For he purified their hearts by faith. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So there we have it. What an outcome. In the history of the church, this is huge. This is a very, very significant milestone. We see this wonderful new clarity which replaces the previous confusion. And this conflict, this big bust-up, has made them think it through. They've been asking themselves this question. What are the essentials of the gospel? And having identified these essentials, they are standing firm on them. So, having resolved the, the issue of the truth of the gospel, there is still the matter of the unity in the church. You see that the Jewish and Gentile believers, they came from very different cultural and religious backgrounds. And as a result, relations between them were a little bit strained. Uh, the Gentile Christians were doing things that made the Jewish Christians very uncomfortable. And now these weren't uh, moral issues. Uh, they weren't issues essential to salvation. They were, if you like, non-essential issues. Uh, they were probably um, ceremonial issues laid down by the law of Moses. But for a Jew, this was, had been the air they had breathed all their life. For a Jew, as if these were in, encoded into their DNA. And in all likelihood, uh, the issue centers around um, two particular sections of the Mosaic Law, uh, Leviticus chapter 17 and chapters 18. Uh, Leviticus 17, if you know your Old Testament law, it was all about the food that Jews could and couldn't eat. And therefore, for their Gentile brothers and sisters to eat non-kosher foods in the presence of these Jewish Christians, that would have made them feel very, very uncomfortable. Uh, Leviticus 18 uh, outlines the boundaries for marriage, who you could and who you couldn't marry. And again, for Gentile believers to ride roughshod over these was quite offensive to their Jewish brothers and sisters. So do you see, having been firm on the essentials for salvation, the council now displays this real amazing wisdom and maturity in being flexible on the non-essentials. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone brings great freedom, but that freedom should not be used insensitively. And so the council asked the Gentile believers, be sensitive, be resensitive to your Jewish fellow believers. Act with restraint for the good of the church and the gospel. Acts 15 verse 28. They said in their letter, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. That is, of course, Leviticus 17, Leviticus 18. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So you see, at the concern of the council, it's not just for the truth, it's also for unity. And for the Gentiles to continue behaving in a way that is insensitive towards these Jewish scruples, that would be incredibly 
damaging. Uh, firstly, it would strain relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers. But secondly, it would endanger the sharing of the gospel with Jews who weren't yet believers. Uh, so the council, uh, they write up their decision in a letter and they dispatch it with a special delegation to Antioch. And in due course, uh, Paul visits the churches in Syria, uh, Cilicia and Galatia. And as he travels around these churches, he encourages them. He delivers the decision reached by the council in Jerusalem. And that decision, of course, was a decision where they were firm on the essentials but flexible on the non-essentials. And as Paul does this, another instance arises when the principle needs to be applied. Paul reaches Lystra and there he sees somebody who will be very useful as a companion, a member of the team in Paul's missionary travels. His name is Timothy. And so he invites Timothy, come join us, help me out, become part of my team. But then he does something which seems at first very strange indeed. He has Timothy circumcised. Uh, Timothy was uncircumcised because he was a half-Jew. Uh, we're told his mother was Jewish, but his father was a Greek. Why on earth would Paul, who has so unrelentingly defended non-circumcision for Gentiles, now have Timothy circumcised? Some people say that he is being hypocritical, he's being inconsistent. But he isn't. And the answer is here in what we're seeing in Acts 15. It's the bigger picture. Because in this instance with Timothy, circumcision is not being made as an essential for salvation. And because it's a non-essential, there is freedom to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. Do you see? Paul wants to do everything possible to pr promote the gospel through the lowering the barriers to people accepting it. And therefore, for the sake of Timothy's evangelism of Jews, Timothy's circumcised because that will facilitate his outreach to the Jews. So, uh, through firmness on the essentials for salvation, the gospel's been preserved. And yet, through flexibility on non-essentials, Christian fellowship and the spread of the gospel has been promoted. And this blend of firmness and flexibility is this wonderful recipe for the health and the growth of the church. Chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they grew daily in numbers. So, that's what's happened then. How does this apply to us today? Well, the issue of um, circumcision and observance of Old Testament law, I don't really think is an issue for many Christians today. But the sinful human heart has an inbuilt tendency to wander from grace into the embrace of law and legalism. And that has always been the case. And that wandering from grace will express itself in different ways. Uh, Fifteen centuries later, in 1545, the Church Council of Trent was convened, another council of the church. Again, at that time, there was confusion in the church over the essentials for salvation. 
over the centuries, the clarity of the first century Jerusalem council had been eroded. An error had crept into the church's doctrine. Uh, Things necessary for salvation had been added to faith in Christ, non-essential things. And Martin Luther and the other reformers, of course, protested against that. However, tragically, their protests were to no avail. On the matter of justification, how we are made right before God, the Council of Trent ruled as follows, and I quote, it was in session 6, canon 12. If anyone says that the faith which justifies is nothing else but trust in divine mercy, which pardons sin because of Christ, or that it is trust alone by which we are justified, let him be anathema, which means cursed. Uh, The more recent Vatican II Council, another council of the church, which convened in 1965, has not changed this. I'm sure many of you have heard of um, Ray Galea. He's a a wonderful and godly and gifted Anglican minister. Uh, He presently serves out at Rooty Hill Anglican Church. Now, Ray Galea was brought up in a devout Maltese Roman Catholic family. He's written a wonderful uh, short book. I'm sure some of you read it. Uh, Nothing in my hand I bring. In this book, uh, he seeks to outline the differences between uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant belief. Uh, I commend it to you. It is a great read. Uh, In it, um, Ray acknowledges that... um, In the Roman Catholic Church, as is also the case in the Protestant Church, there is this incredible broad spectrum of belief and practice, and there are many different groupings with different emphases. However, his concern is with the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, and Ray makes the following observation, and I quote, Roman Catholicism is a system in which God's grace and the work of Christ have some place, but where doing good works and keeping the laws of the church are absolutely necessary to merit salvation. That is what Luther and the reformers saw. And without being able to agree on the essentials for salvation, there was no basis for the reformers to have unity with the church. And reluctantly, of course, as we know from our church history, The Reformers parted fellowship with the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church was born. And what was their catch cry? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now it's not to say that there are no Christians in the Roman Catholic Church today. There are many, but the point is this the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church pulls people away from faith in Christ alone rather than drawing them to it. And today, the issue is not just in the Roman Catholic Church, it is present in all Christian churches. If anyone seeks to add anything to faith in Christ as the sole essential for salvation, then they've lost it. There is no basis for salvation whether it be good works, whether it be the sacraments, whether it be baptism, whether it be an experience of the Spirit. 
So that's the first thing we can see when we come to bringing this to us today. Uh, we need to be firm on the essentials for salvation. But the second thing we see is this. At the same time, we also need to be flexible on the non-essentials for the sake of others. And we do this in two ways. Firstly, uh, we protect Christian fellowship by being sensitive to the sensitivities of other Christians. You see, salvation through faith in Christ alone brings great freedom. But we mustn't use this freedom insensitively. We must always be mindful of other Christians. Uh, Paul would later articulate this principle in his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. There Paul says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Uh, it may be our clothing. It may be what we eat. It may be whether we drink alcohol in their presence. It may be what forms of service or songs we prefer. And the question then is this. Are we sensitive to the sensitivities of others believers in our church or in our ministries which are involved in? To put it another way, are we doing all possible to preserve the unity of the fellowship when it comes to non-essential issues? And the second way in which we live out this flexibility on non-essentials is this. We promote the gospel through lowering barriers to its acceptance. Uh, here again, uh, Paul would later articulate this principle in his first letter to the Corinthians. This time, uh, chapter 1 of the first letter, verses 19 to 22. Paul says this. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. Uh, to win the Jews, verse 22, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. What does it mean to be all things to all men and women? Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that we compromise on the truth of the gospel. And it certainly doesn't mean that we engage in behavior unbecoming of the gospel. But there are a whole range of ways which we can, can then lower the barriers to the acceptance of the gospel for those who don't yet trust in Christ. I think about people who we may be trying to reach out to from other cultures or other religious backgrounds. Wouldn't it be a great idea to learn more about their backgrounds religiously and their culture? Because in so doing, we can then be sensitive to them we don't want to cause unnecessary offence. Uh, there are also maybe things we can do to make people relate more easily to us. I'm sure you've heard of um, Hudson Taylor, the pioneer missionary to China. Uh, when he initially went to China, he sensed there was a real barrier and disconnect between him and the Chinese people. And then he came to this realisation. One of the problems was his mode of dress. Uh, he wore Western clothes and he stood out. He was very different to the people he was trying to reach out to with the gospel. So what did he do? Uh, he grew a ponytail and he started wearing uh, oriental dress. And he said that was a very wonderful and significant step in lowering the barriers to being able to communicate the gospel 
to the Chinese people. Uh, this principle may also come to bear in the forms of service we operate in a church. Uh, when I was in my last church in which I served, uh, Kalara Anglican, uh, the church had a history of being very, very traditional. And yet I remember uh, one older lady who came along faithfully to the evening service, which was primarily pitched for young people, and therefore that particularly had a, a sort of youth vibe to it, and we sung you know, more contemporary songs than we did hymns. Uh, and I remember her saying this, these songs aren't my particular preference, but it is wonderful that these young people are hearing the gospel. And even though it wasn't quite her cup of tea, she came faithfully to the evening service week in, week out. And that was a beautiful testimony to her living out the gospel, lowering the barriers to acceptance, saying, hey, the form of the service, the song sung, it's not an essential issue. I'm prepared to be flexible on that so that others hear the gospel. Uh, we ourselves, uh, we have modified our service, have we not? Uh, we have shortened it somewhat. Uh, we've reduced the number of songs from five to four. Uh, and for some of you, uh, that has been a difficult thing to come to terms with. Uh, rightly, you love singing songs about the gospel, about Jesus, and it is a wonderful thing. But we have done that for two reasons. Uh, to shorten our service time firstly, to have more time for fellowship together, but also to be mindful of those who may come who are not familiar with church. Uh, we don't want the church service to be too long for them. Otherwise, it may be difficult for them to cope with. And so you see, through doing that, that is a practical way in which we can be flexible on non-essentials to serve the greater purposes of the gospel. So therefore, in this area, are we doing all possible to reach out to people with the gospel and to lower barriers to their acceptance of it? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been sovereign over church history. We thank you that you have enabled the truth of the gospel to be preserved over the course of history. And that this wonderful truth of freedom through faith in Christ alone uh, rings true today. And we pray that that gospel message would continue to ring out clearly. Uh, we pray that the church would hold faithfully to the essentials of that message. And where the church has strayed, uh, we pray that it would be brought back to a faithful proclamation of that true and pure gospel. But we also pray that we would also be wise in the way that we live, that we would be flexible on the non-essentials such that Christian fellowship is promoted and preserved and that the sharing of the good news of Jesus with others is also promoted in itself. So we pray this all in the name of our Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sole basis in which we can be restored to your side. Amen. And our closing hymn is a resounding hymn which resonates very much with what we have been seeing because, of course, it is in Christ alone that the church has its foundation.